This episode is not sponsored, but we encourage you to help support the small businesses, charities and organisations that we mention. Welcome back to another episode of Our Circle. I'm Rhiannon. And I'm Jess. And today we are joined by a very special guest all the way across the pond, who is a professor at the University of Redlands in California and is a former assistant director of the Study Abroad program. Please welcome Evie Luca. Yay! Hi, Evie. Thanks Hi. for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So this is a first time meeting you for myself. Could you please share with me and our listeners um, a little bit more about yourself and a little bit more about the field that you are currently about to enter and also what you used to do? Yes, absolutely. And I'll start off with apologizing in advance. I don't know if you've had many Americans on who do this, but I have this wonderful trait where I will mimic accents that I love. <laughs> I'm quite obsessed with both of your accents. So all my friends from uni make fun of me for speaking with like an English twang now because you know the the English fiance, but um, I'll try <laughs> my best not to do that on our podcast. I wanted to start Brilliant. with that. <laughs> yes, I'm Evie. Um, regardless of my twain, I am from California. I've spent about six years working in higher education, which is just university level education over in the States. Um, and then this fall, I'll be teaching a course on, um, it's called Crossing Cultures. It's about intercultural competency and identity, all that fun, sexy stuff um, that we kind of look at when we talk about international education. And unfortunately, I think study abroad and travel isn't quite as normalized here in the States as I'd like to think it is in England or um, other places just around the EU because of your Erasmus programs and things like that. So my main goal is just teaching um, sort of humanity and tolerance and appreciation for cultures that are different than our students' own cultures. And to me, one of the, I know, right? I I love it. I love what I do. Um, To me, I think one of the the best ways to kind of teach that um, understanding is through international ed. So that's what I have the privilege of doing stateside. That's amazing. amazing. I love that. Like, how did how did you even get into that? What influenced it? I think kind of a boring answer, but like most folks in my field, just my own international education, I was really lucky. Somewhere in university, okay. um, I decided I wanted to study abroad and it just changed everything for me. And that was where I realized what I'm learning at home is important. Um, but the experience to kind of learn more about myself and especially in an international context and learn more about the world um, and how I see myself in the world was just so valuable. And there's a huge issue with the equity of how we're sending students abroad in the States. It's still kind of this like rich white kid luxury thing, Mm. which is ridiculous, right? It absolutely shouldn't be. And if you look at what American students pay for college, absolutely ridiculous even mm-hmm. worse than I think it is in England oh, so, so I think that like we're bad and then I look at how extortionately like large your l- loans debt are I can't get over it mm. it's astronomical I, I think it's really criminal especially because at like 17 18 years of age students I mean think about it here they still can't drink alcohol but they're allowed to sign up for these student loans and we're talking sometimes like a hundred thousand dollars a year so if you're looking at right 
the university I work at, um, it's 27,000, that's USD. So I think what that's roughly like 20,000 pounds, something yeah. like that mm. per semester. Um, right. Mm. So semester, those, not you. Per semester. No, per semester. Oh my God. Wow. I didn't even yeah. realize it was that much. Right. And it does depend. We have so many schools, especially in California. And I worked at a private school. There are some um, smaller schools that I really support. I used to work for kind of more of a nonprofit structure. Mm -hmm. um, but even those are really expensive. So asking students to sign up for that kind of debt when they're so young, right? We won't even mm -hmm. trust you with a drink, but here's a mm hundred -hmm. day in loans. Good luck. Yeah, It's just wild. So when we look at how much students spend and there are very affordable ways to do international ed, I think it's really not a cost issue. I think it's more of the way that we advertise it and the way that we position it as like luxury instead of mm. a really beneficial experience that I think is an issue. So as you can tell, I do specifically work with equity and diversity and inclusion inside of international ed, which is a very, very specific thing to do, yeah. but I love it and that's where my heart's at. Well, how did it then get um, presented to you to, not even this job beforehand, when you said that you had the chance to, um, to study abroad, how did that come about for you? Was that something that was advertised in a way that was so apparent to you like oh I can do this or did you actually have to seek out this yourself a fabulous question so it was not really advertised to me and and how I think most of our students get involved with it is I just heard about it from friends okay. um and then I I was in a sorority so American I, I, know. Say, I wonder <laughs> if it was through that because I remember you talking to me about it before they're not all like they are in the movies I no. promise <laughs> Um, some of them are, and I stayed away from those ones, but it really depends on what university you're at. So my university was less like four-year American spirit. It was in San Francisco, San Francisco State University. So it's a state-run program, um, a little bit less expensive, and we had students of all ages and backgrounds. And so the sorority scene was very, very small. It was... Um, kind of the the people who were looking for that maybe more movie um, college experience but couldn't necessarily find it but we only had a couple on campus and like my sorority had like a high GPA and we did philanthropy and we helped out in the community we still did had some fun parties but <laughs> it wasn't all like it wasn't all what you see in the movie but yeah. I learned so much from older women um, through that experience and a lot of them had studied abroad so yeah. that was how I got interested but then I was on financial aid, so I wasn't sure if I'd be able to afford study abroad or if all of my financial aid would transfer. And that was why after I went and I found it to be so beneficial, I was so inspired by my study abroad advisor that I said, hey, that's what I want to do when I grow up. Um, and let's make sure that we're specifically kind of targeting and reaching out to underserved student communities so they know, mm. yes, this is something that I can do, and yes, this is something that's worthwhile for me to do. Absolutely. Mm. Wow, what an amazing thing to like just sort of come to you and then 
get to explore I mean is it more expensive to study abroad if you're from America or is it actually cheaper well it totally depends as well and and I think it's the same in England as it is in America with this there's so many different ways to study abroad so there are these sort of exchange programs and we actually had quite a few in England I always had fun talking to those partners um but there are some exchange programs where you will pay your same tuition that you would normally pay on your home campus and then basically like parent trap just switch places with someone <laughs> at another university I think that's one of the most sustainable models um and for our UK students if you think about it you're getting a great deal because you're probably paying a bit less right yeah. um than the other student would but there's also a way you can basically take a semester off and transfer credits back in it might not be something that your school necessarily promotes mm. um but just as a reminder there's so many different ways to participate in programs like this mm. um so even if you don't like what's offered at your school or let's say you were gonna go to wales but you realized hey wait a second if i just took a semester off and direct enrolled in that program on my own i would save money right. um you could technically do that sometimes universities don't encourage it sometimes they'll tell you before you leave, oh, if you take these classes, we'll give you credit. But sometimes mm -hmm. they're a bit hoity-toity about it and they say, mm -hmm. we can't guarantee anything until after. Um, sometimes there's a limit on transfer credits, all these different nuanced things. But it really can be affordable just because of the range of opportunities, right? You can do something okay. short, you could do a couple weeks, you could do a whole year. It really depends, but I was lucky enough to do it twice. And the second time I did it, yeah. it was actually to prove how affordable it was. So I went to Thailand where wow. instead of my meals in the cafeteria being $10, right? Like seven pounds or something, my conversion yeah. is terrible, but um, <laughs> oh they, were only, <laughs> they were only one American dollar like that. And the food, it was the best mm. Thai food I ever had. And it was in the cafeteria and it was just the best thing ever. But I kind of went to prove how affordable it could be. So it, it really depends on the program. But if a program advertised to a student is super expensive, I wish that we were better about talking about alternatives and different ways to go because mm -hmm. it can totally be affordable. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Jess, I was going to say, did, when you were at university, did you get offered a uh, study abroad? Me? No. See, no, I haven't even heard of it. I wish I had taken it. It was only for a semester, I think. Um, and it was to the States. I think it might have been, I want to say it was to New York. And I just, I think in my head, I just thought, oh, this isn't something I can do because I won't be able to afford it. And I think, mm. like Abby said, you're absolutely right. It's the way that it's advertised mm. to you. I, I, I wish I had done that. And especially when I think about maybe opportunities I could have potentially had, um, yeah. I think it is definitely down to the way that it's advertised to students. Mm. I, I was going to ask you, Abby, I mean, life as we know it has changed for everyone over the past couple of years. And I just wondered how these programs like study abroad have been affected by the pandemic. Fabulous question. Quite severely, as you can imagine, mm. with international travel sort of halting. So in my industry, there's some folks that work at a university. And then, as you can imagine, just like any industry, there's lots of private companies that provide study abroad. So sometimes you do one of these exchanges, that's the easiest to explain. But then there's also companies, for instance, um, in England that will have a center. I'm trying to think, there's a, quite a few Oxford affiliates. So we'll have a company with a center near Oxford, and then they can advertise, we have a relationship with Oxford, we can help you take courses there. But there's an entire company that sort of 
sits on top and is your liaison for that program, if that makes sense. Right. So a lot of those companies were very, very, very severely hit because they're completely revenue driven by students participating in programs. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, I actually had started this new job January 2020. So right before everything happened, um, oh. I was on a site visit in Austria at the end of February right when it started to get really bad Italy had just gone into lockdown and we had a group of students that had just been on a 10-day excursion in Italy that came Ooh. came back to the house that I was kind of like I wonder how this is gonna go but everything was okay none of the students were sick we were fine <laughs> um but right, basically right after I started we ended up having to evacuate 70 different students from all around the world that were on programs Ooh. um which was a nightmare for them. It was a nightmare logistically, right? It was so sad. We spend so much time trying to support these programs that mm. having to break them all up was quite sad. But stressful as well, just trying to actually get 70 individuals out of wherever they were in the world to, to get mm. back to the States. That's quite right. terrifying. Yeah, it was a bit messy. And as you can imagine, our fearless leader at the time, the, the orange man who shall not be named, no. Um, <laughs> He, uh, when he just went ahead and announced the travel ban, basically that Americans couldn't be abroad and wouldn't necessarily be able to get back to the States, it just ensued absolute panic. Um, so we had students all over the, that was mainly um, an EU and UK issue where he was saying students wouldn't be able to get back. But all of a sudden we needed to communicate with a large group of students quickly and get them on flights and get them back. So that was fun. Um, so after sort of March, everything kind of halted and companies not only had to reconcile a lot of programs being cut short, right? If you've paid for dormitories for six months, just because students get evacuated, doesn't mean you can find other people to live there. Um, so a lot of the private companies, some of them closed completely. A lot of them laid off employees. I was really fortunate. I was at a university. So I got to work for about a year and a half all throughout the pandemic. And just when I thought things were getting better, my position was actually eliminated um, mm. last month. But I, I felt so lucky to even work in my field throughout the pandemic because so many of my very esteemed, amazing colleagues were jobless and just nothing was hiring in international ed because there was no international ed. So mm-hmm. hopefully we do have programs running this fall. It's so far, so good. It looks like they're going to go ahead with Delta. It's a little scary, but so far, so good for the fall. Most programs have reopened, not all of them. No programs in New Zealand, Australia for American students, yeah. um, some other countries as well. Sorry, I could go on about this forever. It's work, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> That's kind of where we're at. Um, I mean, you you briefly touched on it. I do want to sort of get into it. You said that Trump, the Trump administration, um, really affected the beginning part with the travel ban. Um, do, do U.S. presidencies have a general sort of effect on study abroad programs, or is it did it just happen to be the Orange Man, as you said, <laughs> um, or is it sort of? each one they all absolutely do and and you would think right policy changes take so long to go into effect um but actually with things like immigration they're able to impact policy quite quickly my job before 
um, the pandemic and before being the assistant director of our study away office, I was actually working in immigration at quite a large school um, in San, San Diego, the University of California, San Diego. We had thousands of students coming in and then we also had faculty and scholars. Um, so like graduate, a lot of graduate level students and postdoc researchers with the Trump administration, it was just a nightmare. There were, there were so many, um, I think we were calling it the three D's, delay, deny, defer, something like that. But basically it seemed like the government purposefully was just making it so, so hard for people to get into the States. And I say people, but we were dealing with, it's like the top neurophysicists from Korea and they're making them jump through so many hoops to get in. We saw just wait times on visas go up from maybe a matter of weeks to like six to eight months, just making it so, so complicated. And when you look at the amount of money that students, international students and faculty and scholars bring into the country, it's astounding they would want to make it this complicated, mm. not even to mention, right, how important international exchange is mm. and just an international learning committee community, sorry. That was really heartbreaking. And um, I have to say it was really scary. I, I didn't love working in immigration. Once I got a, a date wrong in a government database and it immediately ended someone's visa and like red flagged them to the government. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just put a zero instead of a one. Like, what have I done? I've ruined this person's life. And I could get them to, to fix it. It took a long time. But basically, I guess it might help for context. The background of that after um, the attacks 9-11 in the United States, because some of those terrorists were here on student visas, we basically started tracking international student visas as if you're criminals already. Um, mm. So once you enter the States, it's very, very strict. We have to have an address on file that has to be updated constantly. The government can show up Department of Homeland Security can show up at the school at any time and demand to know where they are. And that there's like a whole tracking database. It's wild. So there's amazing folks that work sort of in student immigration that are keeping everything together behind the curtain. But unfortunately, depending on the administration, it gets so much tougher. Mm -hmm. um, one example of that for our undocumented students, for instance, in I'm in Southern California, so we're very close to the border with Mexico, and we have huge populations of incredible Mexican-American students who either grow up, grew up on both sides, or a lot of them, their parents immigrated, so they grew up here locally, but some of them don't necessarily have all of their papers. And we have all of these different acts to make education accessible, as it absolutely should be for these mm -hmm. students, but pre-Trump, we call them DACA students. Our DACA students could actually go abroad and come back. There were kind of special immigration parameters that allowed that for them without having to worry if they could get back in the country. But immediately with the Trump administration, we had to advise that these students couldn't go abroad anymore because we couldn't guarantee that they could get back in. Wow. Uh, so that was just kind of an immediate shift. And something that breaks my heart, I'd have DACA students coming into my office at asking about programs and we do some stateside but if they wanted to go abroad I just that was such mm -hmm. a hard thing to have, to have to do and hopefully that'll change it hasn't quite changed yet but um so yes long-winded answer but absolutely administration does kind of immediately impact our field. Obviously Biden was uh, inaugurated again during a pandemic so 
pandemic times, things aren't back to normal still, of course. So therefore, it's kind of hard to gauge if this administration is actually positively affecting the study abroad like programs and stuff is that something that you probably won't even get some sort of a an idea or answer for until the pandemic has finally started to die down do you think that's a great question I'm not as in touch with sort of all of the immigration stuff as I used to be I used to like go to conferences and know all the rules I think there's definitely been an immediate shift in attitude just in how internationals are regarded how our undocumented students are regarded. So that's that's quite important. However, as far as policy, I think you're totally correct. I think it's gonna take a little bit of time to trickle down mm. and see some of those changes. Some of my fellow like social justice advocates have been quite critical of the Biden administration. There were a lot of promises made. Yeah. I mean, he's a politician, right? They all are. We're still sort of waiting to see come to fruition. Yeah. Um, hopefully a lot of those things would impact immigration and would impact student immigration. Sorry if you hear weird growls. I've got a puppy that <laughs> needs attention. Do you want to come say hi then? Come here. <laughs> if you're going to interrupt, you have to come say hi. This little puppy that I have, this is Toby. He was a COVID dog. Oh, he's so cute. They like attention, don't they? And look, he's so English. He's got a Union Jack. <laughs> I'm sure my colors aren't I, but um, we get asked on the street all the time if he's English because of his collar. And Sean hates this. I'll always say, oh, he's half. And Sean's like, we <laughs> make this dog. Like, this is not our child. Like, I think he's. Love that. Um, Sorry for the interruption. No, it's fine. Um, so obviously it's quite hard to look into the future and into traveling in the future with our current situation, but you've lived abroad and you've traveled quite a lot. Do you have a favorite place that you've been to and any of those places do you see yourself settling down there in the future? Oh, what a question. Um, so many favorites. I'm very lucky. I've, I've been to about 25 different countries now just through my work and through school. It's hard to pick a favorite. I would say a lot of the smaller, more rural places are where you get to know people the most because I think people can be a little bit slower paced and a little bit more open-minded. Mm -hmm. um, however, saying that the first time I went abroad was in France and I made amazing French friends. The first word I learned how to say in French was I'm sorry, which is like a very American thing to do to run around <laughs> apologizing. Um, but I knew, I knew there was sort of this attitude towards the loud Americans who wouldn't speak any French and I didn't know any French. Um, so I learned désolé right, right away and I was leaving with that like everywhere I went and I think the French thought that was quite funny. It's like you basically <laughs> apologizing for being American like this is fine. Um, so I made great French friends there. I was very lucky. Um, but the second place I studied abroad in Thailand, I always tell people I actually learned more Thai living in Thailand for six months than I did French living in Paris for six months. Wow. And a lot of people are kind of like, how does that work? Right. And Thai is very complicated. It's tonal. Well, that's not as tonal. I shouldn't say that. Clearly I didn't learn that much Thai. Um, <laughs> the way you say things is very important. Um, however, I found the local community where I was, I was like 45 minutes outside of Bangkok. They didn't see a lot of tourists making that effort. And mm -hmm. so I think so many folks were willing to practice with me. And whereas in Paris, right, so many people spoke English and it wasn't, you know, they'd say, oh, just speak English with me. But in Thailand, I got picked up by a taxi driver once and, you know, he started speaking Thai. And then I said, 
like I speak a tiny bit and his face just lit up like, oh my gosh, this, this foreigner is going to speak Thai with me. And we spent, it was like a 45 minute cab journey. He was just going through foods and I could basically say very good, very bad or too spicy or more <laughs> spicy. Like, um, and we just, we were going, and imagine like in, in the UK or here, you would never have like a cab driver pick you up and be like, hamburger yeah. like, <laughs> like I would never do that but because I could talk about food and Thai that was like where we could talk oh, so I just sure. found- I feel like if you go to another country and I, I always feel so ignorant if I don't know any of their language because it's kind of this like arrogant if uh, English speaker mentality that wherever you go in the world someone's going to speak English mm. and I, I can't stand that like I I feel like you need to learn some sort of basic phrases just to show that you're you're interested in their culture somehow and you're trying to make effort, you know? I, I totally agree with you. I think with any culture, right, you kind of have jerks everywhere. You'll just run into people who aren't always the friendliest and maybe they've mm-hmm. had a tough day or we don't know what's going on with them, right? They might not always be a jerk. Right. Um, for the most part, just kind of like you were saying, I've found if I learn a couple of words just so that I can show a little bit of effort, right Mm -hmm. so that I don't go in with the mentality of I'm assuming that everyone speaks English right and that everyone can accommodate me I found even if I just learn a couple words like how to properly say do you speak English in the local language where I am that will go such a long way I actually kind of took that on my grandfather he was an interpreter he spoke fluently about 13 languages um incredible when he would travel he would actually take, I guess they were like eight tracks. Um, he would have these recordings and his little disc jockey. And my oh, grandma nice. said on the on the flight over, he would always be learning how to say things before he got there. And then even if he couldn't speak very much, she would say they'd turn up places. I and mean, this was some time ago. It's so much easier for us now, right? That we yeah. should really mm-hmm. all be doing this. Yeah. Um, but he'd turn up speaking some of the words and he actually learned like just a tiny bit, but of Swahili. And my grandmother said that they were treated like, right. They were like family, like people were so honored that they could, you know, speak these languages when they got there. It was such a big deal. So I've tried to take that on and it's so easy to just learn a little bit. I always try and like write them down before I go somewhere. And then instead of having that kind of apprehension, you can turn that into, I'm ready. These are my few words that I'm going to Use. Yeah. And, and is that be rude but hey is that something that you'd encourage your students who are studying abroad to do as well is that advice you'd give them absolutely and that's a great kind of myth to bust is that you really don't need to speak another language um to study abroad of course we have places where folks speak english right you can go to the uk you can go to australia new zealand however Um, even going somewhere like I didn't speak any French and I went to France, there are a lot of English speaking programs. Mm. Um, Even if you've never learned another language, you can sort of take a one-on-one class while you're there and you can take courses in English while you're there. I think I like that in the UK sort of in grade school, you'll have to take, I think it's two languages, right? I think Sean told me he did German Mm -hmm. and French, which is amazing, but similar to me, his German is not not so good, just like my Spanish wasn't when I got out of primary school. So there's always an opportunity to learn more, but we have to get rid of this idea that you have to be like fluent in a language to go study there or to travel there. Because I think if you learn a little bit and you go with an open heart, open mind, and a lot of patience, 
and a smartphone. Oh my gosh, it's so much easier now than it used to be. <laughs> You'll really be fine. I was doing it with like a printed out map and now my students are like, oh, I'll just Google Earth it. And <laughs> So obviously you got, uh, and you've mentioned you got engaged last year. Congratulations. And your partner, happen- or your fiance, sorry, happens to be English, like you said. Have you found that there's a lot of differences between the two of you as in obviously you're, you're coming from an American background he's coming from a British one and you also are in an interfaith relationship you are Jewish and I don't know what if Sean is religious at all is he not super religious but I think Christian roots okay right so have you found that there's quite big differences with, within your relationship or differences at all um coming from faith coming from just your background geography you know things like that have, have you found any differences there Yeah, I think, um, and it totally depends, right? Even just with families. So my family is Jewish and I think you might talk to another Jewish half American, half English couple and get completely different answers. Um, but for us personally, I guess the, the American to English cultural differences, we still discover them on a daily basis. Some things that I think are assumed or normalized, he's like totally shocked by and Mm -hmm. vice versa. Um, it's amazing how many different words there are for everything. Like, right? I just, I'm, I'm still shocked. But I'd like to say I can, I can speak the, the proper Brit English a bit more now mm-hmm. that I could. Or I, kn- I know what a lot of stuff is, but there are some differences there. Whereabouts um, is Sean from in England? Um, Newmarket area near Cambridge. Okay. Okay. So cool. A bit north of us. Yeah. Yes, Newmarket, the horse racing, right? That's what we're famous okay. for, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Have <laughs> <laughs> you found differences in the countries? Because obviously I know you've, you've enjoyed when you've come to visit um, England. Have you found those differences quite stark as well? Um, yes. I mean, you'd find so many differences even just in the States going right to different mm-hmm. um, states. Re, I know you've traveled around to a lot of different places here as well. So but absolutely some kind of English to American differences. I I think kind of one thing I wish was more different is that we both have these similar political climates right now where you're seeing a rise in kind of like fear of the unknown, right? And like nationalism is making this terrible, unforeseen like comeback. And I, I kind of early on would always sort of put England on a pedestal of like, oh, you don't have these like wild right ring orange people. And Sean was like, no, we absolutely do. Um, and funny enough, Brexit sort of happened right when Trump was elected. So we sort of mm-hmm. took turns supporting each other. And that was sort of when I started to learn more about some of the political climate in the UK. I still don't know um, a lot, a lot. I have so much to learn, um, but I think politically, maybe folks think it would be more different than it is the way that our court system works, like the judicial, everything is so controlled by money here. I don't know if you would say the same in the UK. One big difference that I really like about the UK, everybody's not running around with a gun. That must be nice. Um, yeah, gun control is a huge issue here. I actually love watching um, just TV shows about uh, the police in England because I'm fascinated by how brave your police officers are that they charge into situations without a gun because in the States, police officers really are kind of like douchey hall monitors. I hate to say it. And they're not all like that, but mm-hmm. there's a huge power struggle, right? And of course, mm-hmm. I, sh- I should not say they're not all like that. I have an uncle who's a police officer and 
friends that are incredible and are very community driven. However, there is kind of this large understanding. You just don't, you don't mess with a cop and they can be a little rude and right because they have a gun, like people are terrified of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I see the way that like drunk Brits yell at police officers. I'm like, oh my God, they're going to get away with that. And then it's like, (laughs) you know, they've been incarcerated overnight and they'll have to pay a fine of 100 pounds. I'm like, oh my gosh, you'd be locked up and shot and you'd pay thousands of dollars in the US if you like mouthed off at a cop. Um, And of course there are racial disparities too in how people are treated, which is absolutely unacceptable and terrible and in the last year, we've had movements to speak out about it. But for the most part, I think the way that our police system works here is is not very, um, I mean, in education, we say student-centric. I guess you could say like people-centric, I would think. A lot of mental health issues are handled by our police officers, which I'm very against and very outspoken against shifting that. Those are some of the differences I really don't like. I'm not saying UK is perfect either. Um, but those are some things that I like talking about because I like learning about how other countries do things. Is that something that you and Sean actually discuss, like when you're talking about police brutality, things like that? When you're, because um, for, for me myself, like you said, I've traveled to the States a lot of times. And um, when I'm there, I don't tend to, I, I try not to think about the fact that guns are potentially surrounding me. Um, I really try not to think about that because I, I think I'd be a nervous wreck if I'm being honest. But when I see, police because obviously I'm aware that police are armed whereas I'm not aware of who around me is armed Mm. so if I do see a police officer I do feel a bit more nervous than I would and I wondered how Sean probably would feel living there and and I guess you're a partner to him so you might see that or at all is that something that you ever discuss? Yeah I think um I think he's gotten more used to it just because he's been here like a bit over five years Um, Mm -hmm. and in general, I'm probably a little bit more tuned in to some things like this, right? With any couple, right? You might have one person that's a bit more social justice oriented, right? Than the other. So I don't think that's at all, you know, a statement to our friends over the pond. I know Ree, I follow all of your stuff and we normally share Mm -hmm. similar opinions, which is awesome. Um, (laughs) Sean's not quite as into all of that stuff as I am. It's also interesting, right? Depending on your background, it might be sort of a topic that you're into, or it might be your lived experience where you can't not be into it because you're living it, right? Right. Um, And as we're both white, right? It's not necessarily something that we're faced with every single day, um, but something I'm very passionate about speaking up against. As far as the gun thing, it's, it's so hard too, because I do have to, acknowledge I kind of come from a privileged place in that the area I live in I don't feel like I need a gun to feel safe I have an amazing friend who is a public defender I don't know the equivalent there maybe working in low-level courts solicitor right I watch my English crime (laughs) (laughs) yeah if, if you if you can't afford your own solicitor I'm pretty sure someone is appointed to you Perfect. Okay. So that's the equivalent of a public defender here. So because with money, you can sort of get out of so many things. We noticed that our underserved communities, marginalized communities specifically, 
folks of color and youth at-risk youth, right, who grow up in really tough areas, they won't have someone to represent them. So you have people who study law and you make way less money. But um, if you want to be kind of like a civil servant and go be a public defender, my friend is now working in rural Texas. Um, and a lot of the poor community there is white, but is widely underserved as far as access to education and resources. And so my friend working there has kind of gotten a whole new perspective on gun control because there are a lot of folks there who live in really rural areas where it would take the police a long time to get to you. They live on a big piece of land and they don't necessarily feel safe being able mm -hmm. to fend off. If you think about it, if criminals and everyone around you has a gun, right, how do you protect yourself? Whereas me, like super liberal, live in a metropolitan area. Everybody's like surfs up, bro. Like the, the high school I went to, we didn't have a football team. We really had a surf team. That's yeah. just like life here. It's, and Ree's been here loads of time because you're friends and that's how we met. Like I'd never thought about how, so for example, say if we call 999 in the UK, someone's with us within mm -hmm. what, 10 minutes maybe? I'd never mm -hmm. even thought about the because obviously the US is so massive and I know that obviously some places are highly populated so you know it might be different in, in cities and stuff but for rural areas where you could be driving for a good hour before you can actually get to the location that makes a lot of sense in many ways why there is that difference of opinion regarding gun control regarding the services who help emergencies yeah emergency yeah. services thank you. yeah and that's the only reason why I bring up that perspective because I was so shocked to hear her kind of saying those things after she went there but I just try and acknowledge it is a privilege first of all being white and feeling safe when I call the police that they will come and defend me I've had pretty good experiences with most of the police I've interacted with but then also looking at the community I live in and that crime rates are low and that I don't necessarily feel like I need to protect myself with a gun right. saying that there is still so much that we could do as far as like the background checks that you have to go through to get a gun like mm -hmm. the fact that it's so easy I yes. think is, is such a huge deal and you look at we have mass shootings every day in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and most of those offenders have been flagged in some way mm -hmm. either by a family member or by a mental health history, and yet they're still able to get their hands on a gun. So I think I get that people in rural areas who feel they need guns for protection feel very threatened by the idea of gun control, yeah. but I really think there are so many obvious things we could do to make it so much safer. But unfortunately, because money rules everything, right? The yeah. folks who are pro guns are kind of paying off the people in government who would need to make these large sh shifts. So I think that's how we are, where we are. But Sean is always just baffled by the fact that we have so many shootings and so many gun mm -hmm. issues. I mean, it's it, we're almost desensitized to it now because there's so many mass shootings. Like I couldn't even tell you where some of the worst ones have been this year. And yeah. that's terrible. Yeah. It should shock us, right? Yeah, but, I feel like it, sh it should shock the rest of the world as well. But when we hear about it in America, we're like, oh, it's America. Of course they've had another mass shooting. And that's horrible. That's horrible that us as fellow allies are almost rolling our eyes at what is happening in the US because, well, not that it's any better here in, in many ways, but when it, like you said, regarding gun control, that is, it, it's horrendous. And it's sort of like, how does this keep happening? But then, like you said, it's because it's, it's not being stopped, is it? So I can right. understand why Sean's sort of like questioning it all. Um, 
but I wanted to bring it back to, to the happier side of your relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Which most of it is very happy. We don't get into these debates on, you know, socioeconomic, political justice issues often, but we do sometimes. Yeah. Um, regarding like the, the interfaith side of things, um, is that something that was ever important to you prior to, to meeting Sean or even when you were when you were younger when you sort of visualized your future as such did you ever have that want to be with someone who is also Jewish did you sort of expect yourself to find someone within the Jewish community or was this sort of something that completely took you from surprise how, how did that all sort of come out for you? Um, and I cannot speak for all Jewish people right just mm -hmm. just like any person we're all unique in our fun little ways me personally, my dad is not actually Jewish. Okay. So one thing I will say, me personally, I hate the terminology of like, well, it depends on how you use it, but some Jewish people really don't like it when someone says, oh, you're only half. Or for instance, I worked with a Jewish organization in the States working with Jewish students. And some of my students would be like, oh, oh my gosh, that's so surprising that you work for Hillel, you're only half which is this very weird way of looking at identity. I guess similarly, right, if you were mixed race and you were working for like a black student union and someone said that to you, it's like, oh, that's an interesting way to kind of compartmentalize mm. my identity, right? Of like- It's strange mm -hmm. like referring to someone's faith as a race. Cause I understand that some people do see it as like, they do see Judaism as race, but at the same time, I'm sort of like, but it is a faith. It's like, do you have time? That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I, I will say from my background and my education, one explanation of it that I kind of like, even when we talk about race and ethnicity, I do some work with local nonprofits and with my students and things, and even just sharing the distinction between those two things, I think they get really collapsed but race specifically, um, right, has to do, and we say it's a social construct, right? It's not nationality. It's not necessarily where you're from, yeah. but it has to do with sort of physical attributes. I should look it up. Let's look it up because I don't, I don't want to misdo it. This is the professor in me. Whereas ethnicity on the other side of things is looking at shared cultural norms. So, okay, looking at race relating to major groupings into which humankind is divided on the basis of physical characteristics mm. or shared ancestry. That's interesting. Thanks, Google. Okay, whereas ethnicity is more of um, shared cultural customs. Okay. So for me, that kind of helps to look at, because you're totally right. Sometimes Judaism fits into these weird lots of boxes and mm. you're thinking, wait, this is just a religion. How does it sort of feel like racial tension or people are saying you're racist against Jews? I don't think that necessarily makes sense. But I do think about um, Judaism is definitely an ethnicity, right? It's a group of shared cultural norms. But using that definition, Christianity would be as well, right? Um, so I think for a lot of Jewish people where it feels more like an ethnicity and maybe for some right they might identify it as a race that's up to them mm -hmm. there is there's so much culture there and i personally am very very like culturally jewish that's i have so many customs and backgrounds and things like that that i'm very proud of on the religious side i'm not exactly going to temple every weekend okay. um and in the same way a lot of our friends i think Again, this could be another podcast, but you're seeing our generation really pull away from institutionalized religion because we've seen so many ways 
that it's divided and caused harm. Yeah. Even though the root of all religions, it's the same message. It's the mm. same peace and love and higher power and giving back to communities. It really should be. We even, we have the same roots. I always, yeah. I tell people Judaism, right? The, the old book, we're just the OG Testament. It's all the same. Like we still have Noah in the ark. He's exactly the same for us. Maybe he just has a little yarmulke on, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's all the same, but I think institutionalized religion has been used by people in power to divide people. Mm. So now with the internet and with the sharing of information, you have our generation kind of pulling away from these really divisive things that make people feel like you have to believe all of this right. to fit in a box. So similar, probably, I, I don't know about your religious backgrounds, but for a lot of my friends, I'm Jewish, sort of in the same way that they're Christian, where you know, they love Christmas, they have these cultural norms that are very important, but we're not necessarily going into a place of worship every weekend and prescribing 100% to anything. Um, and even some of my friends that go to church every weekend, they don't agree with 100% of what the church does either. I shouldn't make that generalization. Does that does that help? So I, I think I, I define it as it's definitely like my ethnicity that I feel a strong connection to, but I don't necessarily see it as a race. I think yeah, that's, yeah. was that the question? Is that what we're talking it's, about? The question was about how did you see yourself with a Jewish person? Oh, not at <laughs> all. Perfect. I'm just waking up and having my coffee. No, but I think no, but you know what? your explanation of that before you even answer the question, I think is perfect because I had never even thought of it that way. Like I'd always seen, I'd seen ethnicity almost similar to race like as in the physical attributes I'd never considered the cultural side of things so thank you for that but please tell us did you picture yourself with a Jewish guy <laughs> <laughs> so um where I grew up there wasn't a huge Jewish population it really depends like town to town just like I've met English Jews but where Sean is from there weren't very many so similar where I live there weren't a ton of Jewish people growing up like in my schools and stuff like that and because my dad's not Jewish I think um I was very lucky in that my parents were always really open-minded about where I found love and where I found community. I think maybe my mom would have been sort of interested to see how that ended up, but at the end of the day, they really just want me to be happy. But I shouldn't even say that about my mom. I think she's more always just wanted me to be happy. And there are some cultural things that I sort of got back in touch with as I was older. And I think she's really enjoyed seeing that just because they mm -hmm. mattered a lot to her when she was younger. But in the same way, I think a lot of us with religion, right, when we're kids, we're sort of forced into it. And then a lot of us pull away from it. And then you sort of go on your own spiritual journey, seeing where it leads. And if it leads in that direction, sometimes we make the parents happy, don't we? But <laughs> unintended consequence, I guess. <laughs> How do you see that working then for the two of you? Um, as your relationship when it goes into marriage, like even from from a uh, a wedding side of things, like how do you see that ceremony being? Like, do you see it having elements of like Judaism in it? Do you see it having elements of Christianity? Like, how does that? How do you envision that? Again, it totally depends on the family. Um, I'm also so fortunate. Sean's English family has been so loving and accepting. Um, I'm lucky I'm able to go back and visit his family normally over the Christmas break. That's where I have a large break from school and he does from coaching. 
Um, and I've done Hanukkah with them quite a few times oh, and they're excited about it and they want to learn about it. And yeah. I try and make Sean do the blessings in Hebrew and that gives them all a good laugh because he's even, <laughs> but they, they've been so kind of appreciative of it and excited, which I think is how a lot of people nowadays are. They're just, they're interested and they like kind mm. of, I guess, seeing something different. I'm lucky growing up. That was sort of how my difference was received. Normally quite, quite well, um, with just kind of being something exciting and new. And for me, I guess I sort of liked that. I can see how maybe a more introverted person would not have liked constantly having to be different or like explain these different things. But I was very fortunate in that the way I looked at it was kind of like this cool, special thing that I got to Mm -hmm. share with people. And his family has been so supportive and so excited about it. And like his mom has learned how to make some of the Jewish food with me. And oh, it's, it's, so, it's so fun getting to do that. Yeah, I think um, as far as the wedding goes, in the Jewish religion, and I mean, I won't get super into it, but the one thing that's kind of helpful to visualize, there's sort of three le- levels. The most religious, and I think a lot of religions have this, right? The most religious is the Orthodox Jews, um, which you might see more in media or kind of represented as maybe what you picture a Jewish person as. And absolutely no disrespect to my my Orthodox brothers and sisters. I, I have some family friends that are Orthodox that I've gone and stayed with. That amount of faith and devotion, I find like incredible. It's such a different level, right? I, I almost in my head kind of think about it as like an Amish way of living, right? Where um, their faith is really kind of like a test to themselves and the way society is this these days, maybe taking a break from society isn't always the worst thing, but that level of, I guess I can say obedience. I feel like that has a negative context, but um, to me, we should never like no matter how much you respect a person or an ideal, I don't think you should ever prescribe to a hundred percent of what someone says or a hundred percent of of anything. That's just me personally, but I think that's where we get into kind of scary, like, like you know, there's always gonna be things that you disagree with, right? There's always things it's it's good to good to have these differences and you can still love people even if you don't agree with a hundred percent of what they do. But I think with a lot of religions you see the most devout folks, it's an unwavering faith, right? Like whatever is said goes. So that's kind of the Orthodox level. There are, there's a local Orthodox community here and the rabbi is actually super close with my mom. I don't know if either of you have seen Seinfeld. That's more of like an American sitcom, but. I haven't seen it properly, but I know like I I love Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) Right. Well, not to stereotype. That's probably the last thing I should be doing, but my mom is from (laughs) Ireland, which is like a very, like New York-y part of New York and she's a tiny little Jewish psychologist named Dr. Katz. She's she's this perfect little like Jewish Yoda Buddha <laughs> person. She's a psychologist. She's like super laid back. She's yeah. also a hippie, not in like Sean is always telling me he's like Brits use that word differently, right? I don't know. How do you two see the word hippie? Is it I like see it the way that you definitely do, um, Evie? I, I don't see it the way that, and I, I do you know what? I don't know if it's where Sean is based, like or his family are based, not. But London don't see hippie as like, <laughs> like it's it's. I think it's more seen as boho, you know, like or more okay. natural, like relaxed. Yeah. Jess, what do you think? No, I agree. Completely agree with Ray. Yeah. 
okay. natural, so, laid back and free. Right. And yeah. I have a cousin in Ecuador and I recently told him my mom was a hippie and he's like, so your mom does loads of drugs. And I was like, no, 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 not <laughs> that. I at all. But she does wear tie dye sometimes, but very <laughs> like peace and love, social justice yeah. advocate, um, very intelligent. It's probably the better way to describe a, a hippie these days, isn't it? Yes, in some ways. Yeah. Liberal with some. Not all, but some. <laughs> yeah. No, I love it. So I'm trying to, I'm talking about the different levels of Judaism, aren't I? How did I get down this road? Oh, yes. But these Orthodox rabbis, they love my mother, even though um, we're not Orthodox, right? So at that level, you're keeping kosher, um, right? So you're not eating pork. And then to get super into it, um, really Orthodox Jewish people, they don't mix any meat and milk. And the story behind that, I actually love, um, at least the story that was told to me, is that in Egypt, when Jewish people were enslaved, it was like a delicacy to have veal, right, which is like calf meat, mm-hmm. in the mother's milk. That was some kind of weird. And the Jewish people were just like, ew, this is gross. I mean, who wouldn't be offended by that, right? That's awful. Um, but my mom is like, how nuts is that? That somehow that translated to like, I can't have cheese on my chicken sandwich like I can guarantee that cheese did not come from the chicken's mom okay but that's that's (laughs) the original roots of it but lost in translation right it's trickled down we don't mix or I say we I don't do that at all but um orthodox Jewish people don't mix any meat and milk that's just one of the rules there's lots of rules so my mom doesn't keep kosher she's not super religious however she's got a a really profound connection with these rabbis i guess as a psychologist she gives great advice maybe it's nice to have someone outside of the community so saying that it's not like at least the orthodox um jews that i know it's not like if you're not on that same level you can't be connected it's just a very different lifestyle right um and then i'll be much more succinct in this explanation so we have orthodox in the middle there's conservative which is still following a lot of the rules but not everyone keeps kosher most services are in hebrew still kind of old school that was the kind of temple i went to probably a little bit more religious than if our kids go to temple they would go to um reformed is sort of the least strict layer most things are in english you'll see a lot of female rabbis. I don't know if they have that yet at the conservative level, but like any religion, right? There's just kind of different levels of commitment, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. But one typical thing I was finally trying to get to, um, if you're being strict in the Jewish religion, in order for kids to be Jewish, the mother has to be Jewish. It's one of the few examples of old school religion that's not a patriarchy. Yay, women. It's determined by the woman. So one thing that's kind of interesting is that I I have a friend that's in an interfaith relationship and the guy's family is Jewish and she's not Jewish. And so in order for their children to be considered Jewish in a strict Mm -hmm. sense of things, which is not how my family sees things, but for them, she would actually need to convert to Judaism, um, which is like kind of a complicated process. But once she converts... Sorry to interrupt you. This is reminding me of Sex in the City with um, Charlotte. Oh, Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I forget. Did her, um, her bald guy converted? No, she converted. You're right. Yeah. She yeah. converted for the bald guy. And just please yeah. interrupt me. My coffee's kicked in, so you're going to have to get in. <laughs> no, it's so interesting. I'm really enjoying it. Continue, yeah. please. <laughs> so for some 
people, right? In order for your kids to be considered Jewish, you would convert. Similarly, in strict Judaism, the same would go for a marriage to be legally recognized in Judaism. Mm -hmm. Both parties have to be Jewish. And personally, I hate that, right? I like, that bums me out so much. It would make no sense for Sean to convert to Judaism. He would be a better Jew if he did that than I am. I wouldn't know half the stuff he's even learning about. That's like, I'm really not that religious. So because of that, though, we can't technically get married by like an official rabbi in a synagogue. Um, However, it still is very important to my family. Um, For me, also for it to feel like a wedding, there's certain things that are just a little bit different. Um, For instance, like, Instead of just your dad walking you down the aisle, your mom and your dad walk you down the aisle. Mm-hmm. It's like little nuances like that. You've seen in the movies, you have to break the glass. Would you do that? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Please tell me. Oh, no. The circles. I like that you know that. We'll, we'll get to that. But um, <laughs> the glass thing, don't tell anyone I'm telling you this. But um, <laughs> recently. watches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That. I forgot about them. Hi, guys. <laughs> okay. Recently, people have been using a light bulb because I think some folks when they went to step on it they stepped on it in the wrong way it's supposed to be a glass right crash the glass at the end it wouldn't break properly and so people figured out if you use a light bulb it makes the same sound and it always (laughs) breaks and i told sean that and he was like oh that's ridiculous he was like i i can break it like i can break a glass are you kidding (laughs) i can do it (laughs) that's why sean and I'm like, I don't know. They're like, there's a trust the rabbi. There's a reason people use a light bulb. And he's like, no, I can do it. So it'll be like an IKEA glass or something. But I'll have to get back to you on how on how that goes. Yeah. John's gonna break a real glass. I like I like his commitment. That's um, amazing. So so you are gonna definitely incorporate um, some of those traditional traditions, I should say, um, within your within your wedding. And I guess if down the line you guys did want kids they would still be considered Jewish wouldn't they if, because you are Jewish yourself being the mother right so technically they would that even feels so funny to me though right because mm. in my view of Judaism you know in the same way with any religion if you identify as a religion and you prescribe to it you should be able to you know self-identify as being that religion but in theory right these like rabbis that my mom is friends with that are more religious they would look at our kids and say yes they're jewish because evelyn is jewish which mm. almost seems like an unfair advantage like looking at my friend that's gonna i think uh oh she better not listen to this i was saying that's gonna marry this this guy he hasn't proposed yet but we think he's going to oh. um, <laughs> for my friend that's that's gonna marry um this jewish guy it seems so unfair to me that my kids get to automatically be like part of the tribe just because i happen to be the jewish one and that she has to go through this you know the those parts of religion i i find quite frustrating but you sort of briefly touched on it i say briefly we sort of got into the whole breakdown of judaism which i absolutely love you mentioned about it in the media and i kind of wanted to really touch on this because for me personally anyway in my family we we, so my mother is christian but she loves learning about religion i did religious studies when i was at school and i really enjoyed it so I, i like learning about stuff and so um and obviously being in lockdown when there's stuff on netflix we watch so 
for UK Netflix, we had at least three shows and, and films that came out last year, um, or at least to, to, to the UK that was released about Judaism or based on that. So we had uh, things like Unorthodox, Diesel and My Unorthodox Life. I don't know if you've seen any of these, Evie, but it falls more into the Hasidic and ultra Orthodox communities. And from my sort of take on it, as interesting as it was, it sort of gave it in a negative light, I think is probably kind of fair to say, because it's mostly being based on people who are trying to, quote unquote, escape their communities. Mm. They're trying to um, break from the very strict traditions and, and everything like that. And I wondered how how you felt, one, about that being at least in the UK, at least from what I could see readily available to me as the sort of only representation of Judaism and sort of what your thoughts are of uh, the lack of representation in media, I suppose, both for US, UK, worldwide, because obviously you're very proud of your faith, you're proud of your heritage and, and rightfully so. And um, I, I just wonder what that feels like seeing the lack of representation or the representation that is available. Sorry, I know this is quite a wordy question to you but um what what do you think of that um no I love the question I'll try and answer in less than an hour because there's a lot in there <laughs> um, okay let's see part one um representation so I guess where I was coming from kind of with the explanation of the different levels of Judaism <clears throat> and I think with any religion what's so tough is it's so easy from the outside looking in I think the reason stereotypes are so dangerous, right? They come from assumptions. And when you learn about religion, I think you typically learn about kind of the most strict stuff, right? Because it would make sense when you learn about a culture, like, I guess that's like the least diluted. That sounds terrible. Not that my, my religious views are diluted, but you kind of start at the root, right? Of like, where does this really come from? So I think what's hard with, um, and I, and I haven't watched any of those shows. I, I have seen them and maybe even to share, I guess this is quite personal, but part of the reason I don't watch them is I think, I think they do kind of put a lot of things in a negative light. It'd probably be good for me to learn more about them, but there are, there's so many stereotypes about all, all these terrible things that, that go on or that happen. And unfortunately I do think a, a lot of that is true in the old, old ultra orthodox communities right I don't necessarily live that way and whenever you learn about um kind of women being controlled or oppressed right. or any group of people right being told they have to live a certain way mm. you you kind of wonder right like you want people to have free will and have the same freedoms that you have I in the same way sorry oh sorry go ahead. well I I just think I definitely think many people outside of the community us being those people we we can it's very like you said it's very easy to be not so much to stereotype but to just be like oh wow could not deal with that myself stuff like that but then there's also the factors that you have to consider that I think a lot of people and I think that's probably a positive that's come out of these shows at least for me like learning more about it is the the reason why these were founded or why they've got to this point obviously for a little history lesson for anyone listening like a lot of the the stuff from my understanding was that these communities were formed after world war ii after the holocaust in the thought process that to prevent this from happening again so the assumption that people should have children they should keep having as many babies as mm -hmm. possible to not so much make up but to I don't know what the right word would be, not to replace the lives that were lost, but to repopulate. Like. Yeah, like it's heartbreaking, honestly. Like, mm. so then I think that's 
as, as much as like the sadness or the negatives that come from watching those things where you're like oh wow that's really strict oh wow I couldn't deal with that wow how can a woman be treated like that yes like and I'm such a feminist of course I'm thinking those things but for me the parts that stood out more was the heartbreak that I felt that these people have felt the need to live this way because of some thought that they're being punished or it's like they're trying to prevent bad things happening to them so I feel like there's so many other things that people forget are that that contribute to the way that someone worships or or is devoting their their time to their religion yeah I mean and and I don't necessarily know a lot of the roots after watching these maybe you could teach me some things that are explained (laughs) in these in these perspectives right but I think um a lot of kind of seclusion or isolation in religion I think comes from a place of fear um sometimes it's warranted right who are we to say that a certain religion or culture or area isn't warranted in their fear of another society because of the way that they've been treated right mm-hmm. it's, it's a privilege to be able to be a feminist and to say you know free the nipple and you know i i want to do all these things because the places that we live in right we can we can sort of get away with it if yeah. that makes sense yeah absolutely and i think that's one thing that why I love international education so much is I think it's so healthy for folks to travel and to realize that you don't always have that privilege. And sometimes these rules and regulations that come off to us as oppressive, they they might actually make a little bit more sense given a community or a population or a history of where you are. So, I mean, it's even hard for me to speak about the Orthodox community because you know, I, I try and put it in a positive light because I know I know folks that live like that that are absolutely incredible and so yeah. sweet and very welcoming to me. But I've also had a lot of experiences with more religious Jewish people of me not really being Jewish enough. For instance, even I was visiting New York and I had some friends that live in like Bushwick and in, in Brooklyn, yeah. like super hipster. Oh my goodness. I don't know if you've seen the show Girls, but like just oh my goodness these hipsters are so hipstery way too cool for me but fun to visit um but visiting them and and one of my friends had this cool um bike that sort of has like a a giant not a bowl but like somewhere a person could sit on the front of it have you seen those bikes i think they're big in like sweden or somewhere cool like the netherlands or something so it's a bike with like a a person box in the front i guess you could say Okay, okay. He put me in the front of this box and he was like, let's cruise around. And I was like, this is so cool. And I'm like, you know, sitting there like waving at people, basically just like a weird passenger bike or a, a sidecar, I guess you could picture. Yeah. And he said, oh, let's, let's go see your people. And I was like, yeah, let's see my people, not thinking about it. And it was summer and it was hot and I had like a tube top on. And all of a sudden I'm being driven around by like a very non like Jewish, right? We don't have the right clothes on or anything. And my friend's driving me and I'm in a tube top. I probably look naked sitting in this little bucket, right? And we're driving around an Orthodox community in New York. I've never felt less Jewish in my life. Because I felt like the people on the streets were just looking at me like, who is this crazy like naked woman driving through our community? And I was kind of thinking like, oh, I can like jump out and like say hello. And like, you know, these are my people. And I did not feel like those were my people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to realize too, like there's so many different ways to be religious, right? That I don't necessarily, like I wouldn't necessarily be warmly welcome to every community. Mm -hmm. It it, it really depends, right? And and that, that is something I think 
with any level of religion, when you get that strict where you're kind of shutting yourself off, even to people who are the same religion or just people who think differently, I think that's a bit dangerous. But but seeing, seeing what you said about kind of the roots of it and the understanding behind it, um, it's so easy to judge from the outside, right? But we just don't know yeah. what that's like. So how would you, what, what sort of things do you feel would actually be more beneficial to people of the UK, people around the world? What would you like to see? What do you think should be done or represented? It's a great question. I think it's a complicated one. And I think some of that, some of those movies and some of that has been um, in some ways, maybe a tool to help educate and support folks from really any Orthodox background, whether it's Jewish or maybe someone living in, I think like Mennonite Christians live in a very strict way as well. And maybe to support anyone who's kind of raised in an environment like that to just know that it's okay to branch outside of it, right? Because for some people, they sort of do have to escape, which is really heartbreaking in any community. You never want a person to feel like they have to escape. I think unfortunately that's quite common in a lot of cultural backgrounds, right? to yeah. sort of break those familiar norms. But I like the messaging behind that. I think that that is good to share with a community um, just to let people know if you're feeling like something to do with your upbringing doesn't feel right to you, that there are other options, but that can yeah. be so scary when you, know, you lose your family and things like that. I can't mm. speak to that. But I guess as far as representation, it's hard to say some really Jewish people see Jews like me as a threat to Judaism because they would say that we're sort of diluting or like there, there are rabbis that, and not even just rabbis, there are people that publish articles saying, right, that we will be like the end of Judaism because everyone will have interfaith marriages and the culture will dilute and sort of fade out. And that to keep it strong, you have to mm -hmm. do X, Y, and Z. And I guess I get that perspective, but that's also sad for me to hear, right? Because that, that's not how I think about religion at all. Mm, um, I see it as, if anything, continuing it, it's evolving. Because if you put it, if you put it in such a category that you have, to, it's all or nothing, then mm. you're gonna you're gonna lose people <laughs> at the end of the day. Like my my grandpa um, is a retired priest, and he's saying like more and more, you know, you're having fewer people come to church now because there's just such a like stigma behind religion. And I feel like if anything, if there was more representation of Jews who are like yourself, who are, you still carry these traditions and that's so important to you and your identity, but you're not, like you said, you're not going to temple every week or you're, you know, you're not praying all the time. Like, you know, that's just the way that life is evolving, but it still can be part of your, part of your identity. I, I see that as such a backward way of thinking to sort of segregate right people right yeah no Jess I think you're totally right and we do we see the same thing with the church right I think worldwide well I say worldwide in a lot of western areas there's been a really dramatic decrease in folks kind of investment to institutionalize religion and I think our entire generation is sort of pulling away from it because of what you said right it's like I, I don't need to be a hundred percent of this and mm. we are evolving as people and when these structures or these systems are so hesitant to evolve with us, you're gonna lose support, you're gonna lose followers. Mm. Um, for instance, one of my first friends when I moved to Redlands was a gay priest. And I was, I was like obsessed with this idea. I was like, how cool, I didn't know there were gay priests. Like I mm. wanna learn everything about you. We need to open up and be more accepting. And 
like you said, it, it doesn't help to segregate like that and to look at it like that. But I think as um, religious institutions fail to evolve, they, they will lose support. So mm. I guess tying that back to representation, I don't know how you would show that, right? I guess mm. maybe that's something good about TikTok or Instagram is that we do kind of start to see more realistic representation like I mean that's kind of how we learned all of these things about my Jewish identity they didn't necessarily come up right on our trip to Yosemite and I'd really encourage any of our listeners right now to to follow Evie because so many of the things that she shares I've found just so valuable to to learn like why would I not want to learn about other communities in the world that need our voices to help lift and support and stuff and I think for the same reasons that you both were just saying how none of us want necessarily religion to to die out or dilute or whatever but they the like you said the development that is crucial because obviously we need to develop and evolve as humans and and the way that society is pretty much what we're seeing or hoping is that most structures now are actually collapsing to then be rebuilt into something that actually works for this generation this time this this period in life because the way that it works or has previously worked does not work anymore so i i think it's really important for people to to be aware of where you can learn things so follow evie to to get more sort of um of a knowledge and background and and you know vice versa we all learn from each other I think right and I am just right one tiny perspective but in the same way right um following someone like Jess would probably be really beneficial to maybe a more modern priest that's trying to figure out like what where has everyone gone what's what's happening right and it's just important to realize like we need to evolve and we need to grow and um I think although I don't define like self-identify as being super religious culturally, there's still a lot of things that are very prominent in my life. And I think some of that pride does come from, I'm a third generation Holocaust survivor. So my family has been through so much that I think there's a lot, when I was younger, I didn't quite get it. But now as I'm getting older, the the fact that we survived, right? My, yeah. my grandma used to say, and I guess Einstein said this too, but as far as I'm concerned, Omi always said that you look at nothing as a miracle or everything as a miracle. And we were very fortunate in that when she escaped Germany, after quite a few years and maybe a bit of therapy, she was able to find a way to look at, she was just the most positive person. And she looked at things as everything was a miracle because we, I was raised with this idea of we shouldn't be here. We almost weren't here, right? Mm -hmm. And so I feel culturally being able to share these things, it's like there are so many people who you know were killed who can't share these things so it's like mm -hmm. I'm so proud that I'm still here mm -hmm. and that I have so much of that culture and that I can share it but that has so little to do with religion for me right those are just like mm -hmm. cultural customs but that I think that's part of the reason it's so important to me and Sean has taken it on and loves it and and is fascinated by it and it's just fun parts of my identity that I like to share and that he cares a lot about and he's very proud of where my family comes from as well so so that's been helpful. That's so beautiful. I feel like that probably links and ties very well to our last question that we ask all of our guests. And that's what makes up your circle. Meaning if you were made up of a circle, what would that entail? What would that be made up of? Oh, what a fabulous question. I think as I kind of grow and try and go through my own like spiritual journey, we're all still figuring it out, right? I'd like to think I'll have it figured out at some point. I don't think I will. Um, <laughs> trying to see more of just a connection to all other people. So when you ask what's your circle, I'd like to think it's humanity. 
um, and just really and just cool. looking for a shared humanity. That, that's why I work in international education. That's why I think travel and understanding is important. That's why I love podcasts like this, right? Just mm-hmm. a curiosity and an interest in what's different yeah. rather than kind of a fear of it. I think if we can make that shift, and I think our younger generations really are starting to with this mm-hmm. increase in you know mindfulness and getting to know people from other cultures through the internet, trying mm-hmm. to grow that humanity and that understanding and that not only tolerance, but celebration of what's different instead of a fear of it. I think that's what's gonna move us forward. So I guess my circle I'd like to think is just humanity and our growing shared humanity. Oh, I oh, love that so much. <laughs> that's <laughs> such a lovely answer. Well, thank you. Thank oh, you thank so you. much for sharing all of this. And I feel like we could talk for so much longer <laughs> about so many more of these things, truly. And I hope we can have you back to discuss more. But thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Today's episode is dedicated to Hands of Peace. Hands of Peace is a non-political, non-denominational educational organization that provides programming for Palestinians. Israeli and American teens. They are actually someone that Evie has volunteered for herself and it's all about empowering youth and helping them become agents of change. So if you want to check them out, please go to Instagram at Hands of Peace and check out all the links in the description and help support them. If anyone wants to follow Evie and check out any of the links for things that we've discussed, please check the description across all of the places that we are streaming and on our YouTube channel. Please make sure to like and subscribe and we'll see you for our next episode. Bye. Bye.